You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. To Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, maybe you left it at home, maybe you don't have a Bible, um, we want you to have God's Word uh, open in your lap in front of you. And so if you don't have a Bible, just uh, raise your hand and uh, Corey will get one into that hand. And again, we just uh, we want to be working together through God's Word. I have nothing for you this morning. Uh, I come with no wisdom of my own, um, but, but this, God's, God's Word. And so we come together to sit under the truth uh, of God's Word uh, and to hear from Him. And so as we work our way uh, slowly but surely through the book of, of Genesis, uh, we come to chapter 6 uh, today, or halfway through chapter 6. Um, last week, we looked at the first eight verses and uh, asked the always difficult question, why do why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? The, the, the answer to that is uh, that we find in Scripture is not always easy to swallow. It's not a comforting answer per se. It's not one you're likely to find on a Christian calendar or bumper sticker. Um, the answer that Scripture gives simply is it doesn't happen. Bad things don't happen to good people because despite how it may appear, Bad things never happen to good people. The reason for that is there aren't any. Good people don't exist. There is no such thing as good people. Suffering and pain in our world and in general and suffering and pain in our lives in particular comes about through sin. Comes about through rebellion against God. Back to Adam and Eve in in Genesis chapter 3. They had rebelled against God. They ate from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had commanded them not to eat. They introduced sin into this world. Through sin came death. Through sin came suffering, pain, brokenness. The world progressed. Sin and death progressed all the more. As it progressed to the point where Genesis 6, 5 has this absolutely crushing sentence. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's us. That's sinfulness at root in our hearts. Wickedness ruling in every human heart dominated the earth. Brokenness, pain, suffering in our world extends no further than sin and wickedness. And as much as on one hand we we can wrestle with that question, why do do bad things happen to to good people? Um, It's also easy in our day to look out at our world, to see the chaos, to see the the injustice, to see the the violence and the abuse of power and, and the corruption and the greed and the twisted morals and and begin to ask the opposite question why do good things happen to bad people 
Why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why does our world run by those who have no regard for God but actually hate him and they seem to carry on? Seems to go well. It's pretty easy to watch the news today, scroll through YouTube and get discouraged, get frustrated, get angry, feel pretty pessimistic about the the state of our world. Well, today as we look at the rest of Uh, chapter 6, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 7. Here we see God's answer to that pervasive wickedness, the fear of evil prevailing. And we'll look at the the first half uh, of the story of of Noah and the ark, and and what we see here is actually a story of uncreation. We read this passage for us, and uh, we'll walk through it together. It is a, a longer section of Scripture this morning. Um, we're going to read through all of it. I'm, I'm not going to work uh, as kind of methodically verse by verse as we often do. We're going to hit every verse. But we're going to follow a few themes throughout. Um, but uh, follow along as I read Genesis 6, starting in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to the cubit above. And set the door of the ark in in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did all of this. He did all that the Lord, that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. The seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. 
And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued. Forty days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, swarming creatures, all the swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark, and the waters prevailed upon the earth. 150 days. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true, that you have spoken to us in a way that that is intelligible, a way that is clear, that we can study and learn and grow. And yet, Father, we confess our hearts are often slow, if not hard. Lord, would you, would you soften our hearts as we come to a difficult passage of Scripture? Would you give us eyes to see your truth? Lord, that, that by your Spirit you would be at work in us. Lord, I pray that if there's anything I have to say that is, that is not true to your word, that is not faithful uh, to your truth, God, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten and left behind, but that your word would go forward. And God, that you would be at work through the power of your word, by your spirit, in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 9 introduces us to a, a new chapter in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of Noah. Chapter 5, verse one opened with the, the generations of Adam. That was the, the family history of Adam. And that family line of Adam through Seth that that honored the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord but eventually degraded into sin. And all the face of the earth is overtaken with wickedness. Verse 8 then 
uh, is this, this golden nugget at the end of the, the generations of Adam, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grace. God was favorable toward Noah. And so verse 9 then shifts into this next scene, the next chapter. This then is the story of Noah, the family history of, of Noah. The first thing we see here, point one, as we walk through this, is follow the example of Noah. Follow the example of Noah. He's a fantastic example for us. In the middle of a sinful world, Noah is said to be both righteous and blameless in his generation. Now, that doesn't mean Noah was sinless. It doesn't mean he was perfect. Uh, Noah and his, is a descendant of Adam. He is born in sin as we are. But Noah was different from the world around him. He stood out. He was, he was righteous and blameless in his generation. Not sinless, but distinct. Verse 8 says that God was gracious toward Noah. Verse 9 then shows us the result of that grace over time. He's righteous. Noah does what is right, what is good. He's blameless. The word blameless uh, means wholehearted, genuine. He's sincere. And then uh, I think kind of a summary statement of putting those together, we, we see this phrase that we saw used earlier of Enoch, Noah walked with God. Wholehearted righteousness. Noah had an ongoing personal relationship with the Lord. He walked with God. The world around him is sunk into this mess of sin, and Noah walked with God. Verse 11 and 12 speak of the the corruption, the evil in the world. There's this, this moral corruption taking over again. And so verse 13, God told Noah, I'm going to make an end of all flesh. I'm going to destroy humanity uh, along with the earth. Verse 14 is where this just goes to crazy town all of a sudden. The Lord tells Noah, make an ark. Ark doesn't mean boat. It doesn't mean ship. It means box. Make a box, Noah. Um, Okay. This is weird. Um, God gave Noah specific instructions on how to build this box. Um, He's told to build it from gopher wood, which always seemed really weird to me. That sounds like it's right out of the cartoons. Like, what is gopher wood? Um, The reality is it has nothing to do with the animal, the gopher. Gophar is just a a Hebrew word that that we don't know what it means, so they didn't translate it. And, And so most people conjecture that it's cedar or cypress, um, nice and straight, slow to rot, often used in shipbuilding. Um, we don't know. It doesn't really matter. Um, he's told to make rooms in the ark. He's uh, told to cover the whole thing inside and outside with pitch, with, with tar, which would make it absolutely waterproof. And this thing is huge, huge. God told Noah to make it 300 cubits long. 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits tall. Um, The length of a cubit varies a little bit in different times and places throughout history. It's it's typically the the length of the forehand to the tip of the forearm to the tip of the finger. And uh, generally, they would measure about 18 to 20 inches. So that makes the arc um, like 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 
45 feet tall. So this is similar size to like modern day cargo ships or uh, cruise ships. This is massive. It's interesting. We're not told the shape. Um, Maybe he built a rounded hull like you see in some illustrations. Maybe it was just a a square box. We we don't know. Um, First line of verse 16 uh, is actually really unclear, hard to to translate. Um, He's possibly telling Noah to make the roof of the ark and to make it overhang a cubit. Uh, Possibly he's telling him to make the wall come up to the roof and leave a cubit gap. Um, Maybe that ventilation, it's just not clear. Um, But Noah's then to build three decks so that the ark has a basement, a middle floor, and an upstairs. Um, There's a lot of room on this ark. There's a lot of discussion. What could all the uh, animals fit on the ark? What about the dinosaurs? There are dinosaurs on the ark. Um, I would just send you to a little website called Answers in Genesis. If you have weird questions about how could this all work or the timing of it, it's a fantastic website. Um, They go into great detail and all of that. um, And it's super helpful but I don't think it's the point of the text. I don't want to spend too much time on trivia. Um, Verse 6, sorry, um, the end, the last verse of chapter 6, I think gets us to the point of all this. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If you skip down chapter 7, verse 5, again, Noah did all that the Lord commanded commanded. These were crazy instructions. This was a ludicrous project that, that would have no doubt made him a laughingstock through the process of it, wondering if, if this supposed flood never comes, this is going to go down in, in history. Uh, the folly of Noah will be known for ages to come. You can imagine Noah stopping at the hardware store to get supplies and people are snickering around the the corner. Here comes that crazy old coot again. What is he doing? Have you seen the monstrosity out on his property? That didn't faze Noah. He kept walking with God, doing exactly what God had instructed him to do. Noah was righteous. Noah was wholehearted. Noah walked with God. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. What a fantastic thing to see in a day not that different from our own, right? We live in a broken, messed up, sinful world. Evil is called good. Violence and corruption abound. Uh, It's a disaster, and it's easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to get discouraged and, and, and frustrated and worked up. How do we respond? What do we, what do, we do? What's our, what's our role in all of this brokenness? How do we interact? How do we engage? I was talking with some friends last night about this, this very thing. It's not an easy question. And the, the details of how each person is going to interact in, in this world, it's, it's going to be different for all of us. But for every believer, this is where we start. We start with Noah. We start trusting the Lord. Walk with him. Pursue wholehearted righteousness. And you obey. You do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, no matter what the world around us says. You follow him. It's easy to get caught up looking out there at all the the other places and the sin there and the corruption over there and and completely miss the sin in our own hearts, 
Micah 6, 8. He has told you, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. That's where we start. That's where we start. Is your life defined by justice? Being honest, being fair, being truthful. Is your life defined by a love of kindness? Do the people around you know you as gentle, caring, peaceable? Is your life defined by walking humbly with your God? That's the beginning. That's the source of all of it. Do you, do you know him? If you don't have that, then, then, then whatever else we're doing in the world means nothing. There's no value. Do you know him? Is walking with him the foundation stone of your life? Do you actually spend time with him daily in, in, in his word and in prayer? Are you actually connecting and communing with him throughout the day? John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We start without that, um, we we get nowhere. Are you walking with God? It was William McRaven, a retired U.S. Navy SEAL admiral, uh, admiral uh, addressing the, the graduating class at the University of Texas who uh, first famously advised, if you want to change the world, you've all heard it, start off by making your bed, right? That's good advice. This is the spiritual version of that. You want to you have an eternal impact? You want to you change the world? Start with making your spiritual bed. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Learn to open your Bible in the morning and spend time with him to know his word, to to know what he commands so that we can obey. We start there. We're not in a new place, right? The, The wickedness of this world is not a new phenomenon. Didn't just happen out of nowhere. The names, the faces have changed over the ages, but there's still nothing new under the sun. To be frank, um, we're not that special, guys. <laughs> the, the church today is not facing something that the church hasn't faced for ages past or in different parts of the world. The prophet Micah lived under uh, King Ahaz in Judah. You know, just take some time in 2 Kings 16 this afternoon. Um, it's ugly. It's ugly. Ahaz is a 20-year-old guy, not an elected official, but a king, a dictator at 20. Ahaz publicly and ceremonially burns his son in the fire as a sacrifice to Molech. He continues offering worship at the high places, engaging in, in the worship of Baal and Asherah, which is just grotesquely sexualized horrendous. This is the king. And, and this is done openly and, and publicly. This is, this is culturally acceptable. This is where their world was at. It wasn't a pretty place. And the call of God to his people in that day, under that grotesque, violent, perverse culture, 
to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Paul's day in Rome. Not, not a pretty picture. Not a great culture, not incredibly different from Ahaz. The Roman world was rife with corruption and perversion. Men taking young boys as their consorts was just a regular part of growing up in the society. Unwanted babies are left out in the cold to to exposure to die. Caesar claimed deity, right? He he demanded to be worshipped with the, the phrase, Caesar is Lord. That's why the declaration, Jesus is Lord, became so inflammatory leading eventually to, uh, to Christians being burned, martyred. The king's courts were just a, a constant ongoing orgy of debauchery. And I can't help but hear echoes of Noah uh, as Paul writes to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 15, listen to this, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as stars uh, like as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain the world is a mess that's a given that's not new sin runs rampant we live in in Satan's playground that's the that's the reality of it What do we do about it? Be blameless. Be innocent. You be a a child of God without blemish. Hold fast to the the word of life. That's the call. Again, start by making your own spiritual bed. Get comfortable with the fact that we don't belong here. We're going to look like Noah out building an ark in the backyard. We'll be mocked. We'll be ridiculed. We'll be called morally inferior, intellectually inferior. We don't fit here. This is not our home. Simply and humbly walking with our God will shine like, like lights in the darkness, like, like stars in the, in the dark sky. You'll stand out. You will not be hidden. Now, because of that, history tells us anything. You'll be considered odd if not offensive. You'll be laughed at if not persecuted. You'll be cursed if not killed. But that's job number one. Be wholeheartedly righteous, Walk with God, simple day-to-day, one foot in front of the other obedience. As Noah is walking with God, just him and his family, radically different from the culture around them, then God speaks to Noah uh, and foretells this coming act uh, of uncreation. And we'll see, um, we'll follow the example of Noah, and we're to hope in the judgment of God. We're to hope in the judgment of God. As Noah walked with God, he saw the, the corruption of the world. No doubt Noah is concerned. He's fearful. He's anxious. Maybe even doubting God. Wondering. God, what are you doing in this world? What's, what will become of this world? Is it spirals into, into sinfulness? Where's the goodness of God? Where's the justice of God now? Why is sin just running rampant? The timeline's not overly clear, but it's probably 75 to 100 years um, 
before the flood in verse 13, um, when God warned Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. That's that's coming, and, and he gives Noah the instructions to build the ark. And then chapter 6, verse 17, says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God's judgment is coming. And it's coming hard. Down then into chapter 7, verse 11. The 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month. On that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were open and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. For those who wonder if this is mythical, um, mythical stories don't have details like the 600th year in the second month on the 17th day of the month. This is history. Picks up then in verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life he blotted out. Every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed a hundred and fifty days. God's judgment is coming, and it's coming swiftly, and it's coming decisively. The fountains of the great deep burst forth. The the windows of the heaven are, are thrown open. Water covers the whole earth. Even the, even the mountains are covered. Uh, It's quite possible that the mountains that we know now, as we look out at the Rockies, weren't quite there yet. The the tectonic plates may well have shifted, uh, creating the the deep oceans and the high mountains as the flood subsided. Um, But at least the mountains of Noah's day are covered. Verse 20 tells us they're covered by 15 cubits, which at first you're like, how would he know that? But that's about half the depth of the, half the height of the ark. Um, I suspect we, we floated right over top of the mountains, so we know we got at least 15 feet of draft there, 15 cubits. Um, the language here is expansive. There's no way around it. Even the mountains are covered. Why would you say that except to say there is no dry land left? None at all. Not on earth. Uh, not just certain area of the earth. Verse 19 says that, that the mountains under the whole heavens were covered. Every mountain that is under the sky is covered. Um, that's all of them. The language of death is equally expansive. Three times in, in verses 21 to 23 we're told three different ways that every other living thing is destroyed. The end of verse 23 we're told that nothing and no one else survived only Noah and what was with him on the ark. God wiped out 
every living thing. Verse 24 is this statement of divine overkill. The waters prevailed 150 days. God is putting on display his wrath, his judgment. This is how God feels about sin. He will destroy it. It will be punished. God's righteousness is severe. And he is a severe judge. It's terrifying language. But as we look at this a little more closely, the language that that Moses uses here is actually very specific. That's why I keep using this this odd word of of uncreated. That's, That's what he's doing. God is saying, in a sense, that he is is undoing the the creation process. And we see the the parallels, Genesis 1-2, at the very beginning, the whole earth is covered in water. Then God creates an expanse. He he separates the waters below from the waters above. He brings dry land out from those waters below, and then he fills that land with every living creature, birds, livestock, beasts, creeping things each according to their kinds, and then he creates man, and he blesses the man. He tells him, go be, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then as sin enters the picture and begins to increase on the earth, God in his judgment reverses that. First, he curses man. He warns them of their coming destruction. Then God closes the expanse, the waters above and the waters below as the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven are opened. Dry land that God had brought forth out of the water is submerged again. The man, the animals, the creeping things, the birds that God had created to flourish on the land are are destroyed or wiped out. Once again, we find the earth there covered in water. God is saying his, to, to his children uh, what my mother would often say to me, I brought you into this world and I can take you out, right? Sin will not go unpunished. God is a God of justice. God will not be mocked. He is a God of impeccable goodness and wickedness will not be unchallenged. The, the, the degree to which God loves that which is good is the degree to which he must hate that which is evil. God is not out of control here. He's not challenged. As sin abounds, his justice responds. God is patient. He most certainly um, will not respond in our timing, but he will certainly respond. Second Peter 3 tells of how God's justice uh, in the flood ought to be um, both a warning for us, but also an encouragement to us. Second Peter 3, it's a little small for the screen there, but let me read it for us. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come. In the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago 
And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means of these, the world and the, and the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God judged the earth once before. He judged with water, and he will judge again. The judgment of fire. And so Peter tells us, yes, in the, in the last days, and he's saying in, in these last days, biblically speaking, the last days are the age between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. We live in the last days, and in these last days there will be scoffers. People will mock the followers of God. They will mock God himself. And they, they deliberately overlook that God has judged the earth once with a flood. They say, no, no, the, the world just continues on. You say this, you say this Jesus is coming back, but, but the world has just been continuing on ever since the day of creation, and nothing's changed and nothing will change. They overlook that he has once judged, and they deny that he again will judge. They say, no, things are just going to carry on. But that second judgment, that fuller judgment, that, that ultimate judgment is coming. Jesus talked about Noah the same way. Matthew 24, 37 to 41. For as were the days of Noah, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then uh, two men will be in a field and one will be taken away and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Just mess with you a little bit. I don't know about you. Um, I grew up thinking taken away was, was a good thing. Taken away here is God's judgment. They're walking together and one is swept away by the wrath of God. Just as the wicked were in the days of Noah. God's judgment is coming. No one knows when. No one's going to expect it. You won't predict it. The world will be going about its business day by day, just as they did in the days of Noah. And judgment will come from God, and it will come suddenly. This is a warning for the wicked. This is a call to, to turn from that wickedness to God before it's too late. But it's also an encouragement to the righteous. Christians. Why are we pessimistic? Why, why are we defeatists? Why do we mope around saying, oh, this world? Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. The, the world feels out of control. Everything looks terrible, and we wonder, where will it, where will it end? Are we just stuck in this, in this bottomless spiral? Here's the question. Why, why do good things keep happening to these bad people? Why do wicked seem to rule the world and get away with it? Where will it end? Well, we know where it will end. That's not a question. It's not bottomless. 
As we, as we look out into this world of, of brokenness and violence and wickedness, we're right to be grieved. We see wicked men prosper as they promote evil. We, we see the pain and the suffering and, and the brokenness that, that follows out from that. But God has not lost his seat on his throne. Not for a moment. The Lord is not fearful. His plan, his church, it, it's not threatened in any way. Not for a moment. Listen to this glorious words of hope from, from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. That's today. That's our world playing out. Now listen to what God says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. God says, good try. You can, you can try to burst my bonds. You can try to break from me, but I've already put my king in his place, and he's not going to be moved. God is not threatened. He's not worried. He's not, he's not wringing his hands, hoping everything's going to turn out okay. So why are we? I was talking with a friend of mine about this the other day, and uh, he coined a, a great little phrase. He said, we, we ought to be apocaloptimists. Apocaloptimists, I like that. Is the apocalypse coming? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, is this world racing toward its own destruction? Absolutely it is. Do, do you see how, how bad things have gotten? It's about to come to a crashing, tremendous end. Yes. And that's okay. I'm all right with that. I'm optimistic about that because my God reigns. Because my Jesus is sitting on the throne and he's not threatened by any of this. Because all of the wicked people prevailing on the earth do not stand a snowball's chance in hell, if you'll excuse the expression, because that's where they will be sent. And they will be judged. The evil of this world does not threaten our God, and it need not threaten us. It may kill us, but that's no threat to those who have eternal life. It's no threat to those who look forward to a, a resurrection and glory. We should not be surprised as evil prevails. The Lord has clearly told us that it would. When Jesus comes back, it will be like the days of Noah. It will be wickedness over the earth. But he's also told us that he will accomplish all his purposes. Uh, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Psalm 37, 1-9, these, these words have been so dear to me over the past while. Listen to the words of David. Fret not yourself. Because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. 
he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. What a glorious hope. What a beautiful reminder. The inheritance of the land, that's, that's God's blessing. That's the promise of, of eternity with him. And that's what's in, in store for those who, who wait on him, who patiently, peacefully trust him. And the evildoers, they'll be cut off. The ones who scoff and, and mock, the ones who try to put us to shame, they will be put to shame. Three times David says, fret not yourself. Don't worry. Don't be anxious in this world. Don't, don't get all, all caught up and, and concerned and overwhelmed. And what about this? And look at this and, the, and this conspiracy and that. And everything's crying together. And, 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 and David says, don't. Don't fret over it. Jesus is coming back. His judgment will set all things right. Be confident in that. there, There is hope in the judgment of God. So we ought to to follow in the example of, of Noah, wholehearted righteousness, walking with the Lord. We have to hope in the the coming judgment. We have have confidence in our God through the midst of it. And then finally, trust in the promise of Christ. In the middle of judgment, God is both keeping and making promises of Christ. I know we've we've moved through this passage a little sporadically. Um, Chapter 6 ends with, with Noah doing all that the Lord had commanded, building the ark, preparing it. Beginning of chapter 7, then God sent Noah into the ark. Little details added there. Previously, God had said um, two of every kind. That was the standard. Uh, Now he adds a little more information. And and seven of every uh, clean animal, or seven pairs. Um, Those are the animals that are acceptable for food and for sacrifice. Verse 7, Noah and his family enter the ark. We're not told how it happens, but verse 9 simply informs us, so do the animals. By the hand of the Lord, two by two, male and female, they went into the ark. For seven days they, they loaded and they waited. Skip down to verse 16. And those who entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. God in his wrath against sin, brought judgment onto the wicked earth. And in that, he he vindicates his glory, displays his power and his might, manifests his, his holiness and his justice, and washed this wicked world from the face of the earth. And yet, as we saw last week, the Lord does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Though he is a God of terrifying holiness and and, and unimpeachable justice, he is also a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 
So even in his wrath, he's gracious. God showed grace to Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, undeserved kindness from God. And so even as God poured out his wrath on the earth, he rescues Noah, protected Noah, carried him through the judgment to the other side. If we're not careful, uh, it's easy to read the Bible as kind of a series of disconnected stories or even just loosely connected stories. That's not what your Bible is. Scripture has one ultimate author. It's God himself. uh, And it has one overarching story. It's the story of Jesus. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation, it is the story of Jesus. Luke 24, 27, right? The, the, the road to Emmaus, they sit down together, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. On that day, Jesus sat down and said, you remember the story of Noah and the ark? That was about me. It was about me. Let me show you. Like, that would have been an awesome Bible lesson to be in on. I'm sure the ark made explicit appearance there. The various covenants of God, as you, as you move through Scripture, they aren't separate from one another. They, they're not different ways to come to God or different paths of salvation. They, they're a building this unified story from one step to the next as God is adding a little more detail, a little more information, revealing a little bit more about who he is and how he will save. We'll dive deeper into this next week. But, but in pouring out his wrath and rescuing Noah and his family, God is, is building on that promise of the rescuer. The flood, the ark, are given as examples of what is to come. That one day there will be a full judgment, a, a complete judgment, an absolute cleansing of, of sin, not with, not with water which, which washes the surface, but with fire that purifies to the core. And in that final judgment, every sinner and all sin and all the curse of sin and all the chaos of sin will be utterly and finally removed from the earth. But once again, in that final judgment, just like in the days of Noah, the Lord will rescue those who are his own. Just as Noah and his family are, are, are perfectly safe inside the ark, carried through the judgment to the other side. So it will be for those who are in Christ. Those who have, like Noah, found favor in God's sight, who, like Noah, have walked with God, and who, like Noah, by faith entered the ark. All who, by faith, have entered into Christ. There's a handful of little details. Maybe it's a little more speculation Maybe it's intentional. The word for pitch that is rubbed around the inside and outside of the ark, it's, it's not the normal word for pitch. It's the word kapoor, as in yom kapoor. It means covering. Um, it's translated atonement. They're, they're safe inside this box that's covered with atonement. God is saying there's a, there's a greater salvation coming. And the Lord shuts them in. He keeps them. He rescues them and he protects them and he will bring them safely through. They will be completely sheltered from the wrath of God. 
hidden in the death of Christ will be carried through the judgment, brought safely to the other side, to a new world that is cleansed from sin, that is perfect and holy in every way, a world of of life and joy and the presence of God. No longer will there be any lack of clarity on, on why good things happen to bad people. The Lord will judge the wicked and some he will forgive and preserve and bring into this new creation. Are you trusting in the promises of Christ? That day of judgment is coming. It is coming and we don't know the day or the time. It will come like a thief in the night. While people are eating and drinking and celebrating weddings and and feasts, all of a sudden God's judgment will come. Are, Are you ready? This is a warning. Now is the time to be hidden in the ark, to be nestled safely by faith in Christ, who is the only shelter from the wrath of God. And church, this is our hope. Don't be discouraged. Don't fret yourselves over the one who does evil. Yes, we live today in a world that is overrun with wickedness, but it is not ruled by wickedness. It is ruled by the Lord our God. And he judged the earth once. He has shown his power. He has shown his justice clearly. And he will judge the earth again, once and for all. That that day is coming. So follow the example of Noah. Live your life in in wholehearted righteousness, walking after God, obeying him. Hope in the the judgment of God. It's okay to take comfort in the knowledge that, that the Lord will come as righteous judge that the wicked of this world will be wiped away and trust in the promise of Christ. He is our only shelter, our only hope. Would you pray with me?